All right. Well, the goal today is to finish off uh, this series, Bible Overview in 40 Points. Now, I think I'll make reference uh, from it from time to time, come back and review the 40 points. So um, we can uh, maybe try to keep those uh, fresh in our mind and see if that's a benefit uh, to us. Um, but we're on points number 39 and 40 uh, this morning here on the title slide for our series. Um, we're going to finish off point number 39 with the general epistles. Uh, let me uh, go to our next slide and just remind us ourselves of the pattern that we've seen. Uh, this pattern suggested by uh, one commentator, John uh, Phillips, and uh, it's a 949 pattern. Nine church epistles written to the Christian churches in various cities. Uh, they didn't give themselves titles like we do. So you didn't have the First Baptist Church of Rome. You just had a church in Rome. Uh, they didn't have um, the different denominations like uh, Christianity tends to have today. Um, so you had the, the church in Rome and the church in Thessalonica, for example, Corinthians and uh, Ephesians and so forth. Um, you had four uh, pastoral personal epistles, three of them to pastors, uh, two to Timothy, one to Titus, young pastors that uh, Paul was um, mentoring and giving advice to, and then one personal um, non-pastoral epistle to his friend Philemon. And then nine general epistles, given that name, not given that name in the Bible, but given that name uh, because there just seem to be uh, overall generally two churches. And um, Revelation's just thrown in there to make it that 949 for memorization purposes, but um, Revelation's a little bit different, so we don't usually think of it as an epistle. Um, so technically we wouldn't categorize it uh, that way. So we're going to try to finish off then the general epistles. Because uh, we've done all of them except the epistle of Jude. Okay, so Jude then is the last um, book as we are surveying um, these uh, books of the Bible. Um, we haven't been surveying all of the books of the Bible, of course, but in uh, some of these points here in the New Testament, that's what we've been doing. Okay, so we'll go to our uh, next slide then and, and take a look at uh, Jude. And we have... Uh, Kind of, we've been following a pattern here looking at the authorship and the date, um, the purpose and theme, any special considerations in the summary of the books. And that's what we're going to be doing uh, with Jude. And so uh, the first uh, thought here on the authorship, and I think I might have mentioned this before, so I won't spend a lot of uh, time on it, but um, to our knowledge, we believe that the book of Jude was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Um, Jesus had four brothers. Um, we say half-brother because they would have been uh, sons of Mary and Joseph. And, of course, Joseph was Jesus' earthly father. So in that sense, I guess you would think of them as full brothers. But we understand and know that Jesus was born of the Holy Ghost. And, and so um, Joseph wasn't his biological father. But Joseph would have been the father that he grew up with. Um, likely that Jesus learned carpentry skills because that was the trade of Joseph. And that would have been common in their society to learn uh, family trade. Um, we don't hear a lot about Joseph when you get to the events and later in Jesus's ministry and life. Uh, Joseph is never mentioned. Uh, his mother Mary is mentioned. Um, that leads us to believe that likely Joseph had died by that point. So Joseph was not alive when Jesus conducted his three years of earthly ministry. Uh, but there are four brothers that are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, there's um, mention of sisters without mentioning names. 
And so there were a number of children in the family. Jesus, of course, would have been the oldest. Um, two brothers, James and Jude, are um, uh, the, the consensus tends to be amongst uh, Christians studying the scripture is that the, his two half-brothers are the authors of the book of James and the book of Jude. And so, so it's likely uh, written by Jesus' half-brother Jude. Now, his half-brother Jude and James, um, they had not trusted in him uh, early on in Jesus' ministry. So apparently then sometime after that, they trusted in Christ as Savior. And uh, I would imagine, like we also read about with others from his hometown, that it was hard for many people to get past the idea of, hey, wait, this is the kid that grew up here in Nazareth. Um, Jesus uh, said at one point that it's hard for a prophet to get honor in his hometown, uh, that often people would recognize, and, um, and, and not just speaking of him only, but I think that happens in general, like the the kid you grew up with, wait, your little squirt that was running around here, you know, and this, and especially when we're talking about human uh, prophets and, you know, human kids, wait a minute, I remember you. Wait, you're the one that TP'd my house when you were 15 years old. Wait, no, I remember you. You were the kid in second grade, you know, okay. Uh, so I think it, it's a little bit uh, difficult sometimes to get past what we remember. Now, uh, Jesus of course, did not have a sin nature, so they weren't uh, dealing with those kind of thoughts. But still, I mean, uh, you know, humans judge by sight. It's, it's what we do. Doesn't mean it's always a good thing to do, but it's what we do. And uh, we have a hard time getting past um, the, the um, images, the impressions of reality and truth that have formed in our minds over the years. And so it's, sometimes it's hard to think, well, I always thought of that person this way especially if you knew them all they're growing up. Most of the growing up of people is when they knew less and they, they weren't prepared to be a leader. And then you get, now all of a sudden you've got to switch gears. I've got to think of, especially if in a church you have someone who grows up in the church and becomes a pastor. It's like, wait a minute. Like, I'm 60 years old, and I've got to think of this 25, 30-year-old as my spiritual mentor and... Oh, one to submit to authority, and so that can be hard for us as people. So um, I don't know um, to what extent that w- um, was Jude's problem early on. Um, he did not trust in Christ as Savior. They all rejected him. His whole hometown rejected him. Um, yet possibly, I mean, it would also be it's your own brother, um, and, and coming to the point where you realize that he's not just my brother. He has, yes, he is. He had, Jesus had a physical body. But this is God in the flesh. I can't think of him just as a human brother. And I, I think for them, some of them, that I'm guessing, might have been a stumbling block. So the Bible, again, does not come right out and say that. But the Bible does clearly say that they didn't believe in Christ. Well, um, so apparently things did change, thankfully. And that would be great if the entire Joseph and Mary household um, trusted Christ as Savior. So we, don't, we have reason to believe that his half-brother Jude and his half-brother James came to saving knowledge of him, uh, but also uh, the other brothers and the unnamed sisters, and perhaps there's other brothers besides the four that are mentioned. Hopefully they all came to a saving knowledge of him. Now, we all wrestle with potentially things like this. Um, 
um, and wrestling through issues that might keep us from trusting Christ as Savior. And um, yet, um, that's the major purpose of the Scriptures, to give us information, to give us arguments in favor of, to, to provide evidence in support of the, the idea that this is God's plan of salvation from the beginning, this wasn't just a man, this was God in the flesh, here is his pedigree, here is the justification for him making those claims, here's the support that provides evidence and proof of his messiahship and therefore he's to be trusted in for salvation this is the plan of salvation that god presents from the beginning to the end from genesis early on chapter 3 verse 15 the first mention of the gospel uh, in the scriptures to the end revelation which we'll look at today um, and so jude came to a point of that well, i said i wasn't going to talk that long on the authorship but well, i just kind of talked a little while there let me keep us going, or we won't get through to Revelation today. Um, so, according to one source I was looking at, I think the, the date was written, uh, the book was written around AD 70, and then uh, looking at the purpose of the book uh, to counter apostasy arising from false teaching. Therefore, the theme of the book, contending uh, for the faith, and we'll read a few verses out of Jude uh, here in a moment to get a feeling of these two themes here. Uh, but remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, the book of uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, and is profitable for, for doctrine, teaching, okay, correction. Okay. The Bible gives us um, these books for benefit. Okay. Um, the Bible, you might say, um, and, and people have uh, referred to it this way, the sufficiency of the scriptures. The Bible is sufficient. It's enough uh, to give us what we need to live the Christian life successfully. And so these little books, like the book of Jude, uh, which is just one chapter long, um, not very many uh, verses in it, as well as two other books we'll look at today, 2nd and 3rd John, are very brief. Uh, but like uh, some of the Old Testament prophets that are also very brief, those minor prophets, does not mean that what's in them is unimportant. Um, so the truths there can be very helpful. Um, it obviously means the amount of content in them has to be less by virtue of the shortness of them, uh, but still they can be very important and helpful to understand and read. Okay, so again, uh, with um, Jude here, um, oops, I thought, okay, I didn't turn around to look and see, but I thought... Oh, I see what happened. Uh, the purpose had, I had to click it twice to get the whole thing up. And uh, there we go. Got the theme up now. Contending uh, for the faith. And then... Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... All right. Um, special considerations on them. I won't uh, uh, spend a lot of time on that, but it fits with the themes of uh, people have, you know, being a, a group of Christians that... Um, likely we're being troubled by false prophets and uh, instruction uh, that was given to that group of people that were that way. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't know if we have any false prophets that have crept into our local church here, uh, but that could always happen, and that does happen in society. Okay, So going to our next slide, uh, 
the book of Jude on the summary. Okay, so there were presence of false teachers uh, in this church, and basically Jude sees the need to take action uh, to resist and or remove them. Uh, so one of the things that we can get out of books like this is, is we see inspired uh, information on how to respond uh, to folks like that. So if we have those that are, te- that are false teachers, that are teaching things contrary to the gospel especially, um, do we have conversations with them to uh, come together and look for common commonalities? Um, let's try to find where we can agree and where we can't agree, we agree to disagree, and then maybe we wrap arms around each other in a big circle and sing kumbaya. Um, well, there are, you know, in our society, there are those that kind of want you to approach things like this. Um, it's not been very often I've come right out to someone and basically said, there's a false teacher, but I had a clear time of, of doing that with the family in our school. I, I felt compelled to, as just a clear warning to them to be, you know, to be aware. And that was a family that had been attending another local church and was and had come up into our seventh uh, was going to be coming up into our seventh grade. Our, our program in our school uh, has a church attendance requirement as part of the Bible program that we're trying to get them rooted in um, certain behaviors and habits that are going to help them grow as a Christian. One of them is we encourage you to be regular in church and and be under the preaching of the word. And so they had been attending another church locally, not ours. Uh, but then I had heard that they were starting to attend the Mormon church. And um, so I had just approached them and let them know that that church wasn't going to meet our church attendance requirement that was coming up in grade 7. And uh, so I, uh, when I approached them for that, they, I think they were... They were strongly connected with the church. I think they connected with the church as much along the lines of friendship and feeling support, uh, more so than anything that would be related to what the church is actually teaching. So I think in their hearts they weren't doctrinally Mormons, but the Mormon church had reached out to them and kind of embraced them and pulled them in through you know, kindness and, and so forth. And they had had some sort of a falling out with the church that they had been in, and um, I was concerned with that. Now, when I told them that that wasn't going to work the following year, they actually pulled their kid out of our school right away. Um, They did that um, thinking, well, if they can't come next year, let's get them into a middle school where we don't waste time in sixth grade forming friendships that are just going to have to end next year. Um, So I asked if I could come talk with them at their house, and at their house, I just clearly said to them, I said the, the Mormons are false, they're false prophets, they're, they're false teachers. What they teach is contrary to the word of God. And so it's one of the few times where I've just had that you know, time, that opportunity where I felt compelled to be that blunt. Um, I don't think it worked. Um, I was really hoping that, that just hearing clearly, that it wasn't just another Christian church. Um, and I don't know everyone's knowledge of of the Mormon uh, faith, but the, the Mormon faith has teachings that are that deviate huge from the teaching of the Word of God, and it's fairly easy 
if you've got the right materials to, to show and demonstrate um, that this faith is based upon a lot of falsehoods and false claims. And um, so I've had Mormon friends over the years. I'm not anti-Mormon people, but um, the concern again is they're being duped. They're being misled you know, originally by Joseph Smith, who, uh, who made the whole thing up. Um, and, um, and it's sad, and I hate to see people pulled into a false religion uh, like that that denies things like the deity of Christ and and uh, his you know the gospel they undermine that so they didn't they don't just have you know a few differences on minor issues they're they're on the biggies uh, but anyways that's you know we haven't had those type of teachers in our own church where we've had to do that kind of resisting and and removing but that's one of the things Jude was dealing with and so then. Uh, one of the other themes, as we kind of summarize the book, um, he talks a little bit about how there will be judgment for apostasy. Apostasy, or an apostate, is someone who is that false teacher who teaches things contrary to the word of God. He talks a little bit in the book about characteristics of apostasy, and then encouragement to believers to hold firmly uh, to the truth. So here are a few verses out of Jude that gives us a feel for some of these. Um, chapter 1, of course there's only one chapter, verse 24 for there are certain men crept in unawares, uh, they've snuck in, we weren't even aware of it, uh, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So people that had crept in, that are identified as ungodly and, and they're under condemnation, what did they do? The grace of God turned into something not good. Uh, lasciviousness, uh, just carnal behavior, lusts of the flesh. Um, and sometimes people do that. They take um, teaching that would cause people to behave in ways that are not God-honoring, they're not godly, um, and take things that God would do for Christians and teach those, twist those in ways uh, where people are being encouraged in behavior that's not God-honoring. Uh, even to the point of denying our, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, and you know any faith that you know even denies things like the power of what Jesus did on the cross to save. And sometimes that could be pulling back into the Judaism that went on, perhaps uh, teaching that you have to keep the law of Moses. Um, so pulling people back into a works salvation, um, perhaps you know teaching kind of. Um, in the realm maybe of the prosperity gospel or deism, deism uh, teaching people that eh, God doesn't really get involved in your everyday life, so don't worry about a personal relationship with God, do your own thing, sometimes people have taught that, or maybe a prosperity gospel where you know, one of God's goals in life is for you to have material prosperity and wealth, and you know, that's what the Christian life is about, is seeing God bless you that way, and so um, that could be you know, pulling into the lusts of the flesh, um, the lust of the eyes, maybe the pride of life. And, and so when uh, these false teachers did that, they're being condemned. Uh, some other verses just to highlight these uh, summaries that we, we took a look at there in Jude. How about verse 20? Um, instructions for believers. Uh, but you, beloved, a term that's identified, we're talking to the Christians now, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And some have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, 
hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. And so just it closes with the encouragement here um, of believers to stay strong in the faith, uh, to stay on the right track. And um, uh, previous in the verse, a verse that I didn't read, uh, talks about contending for the faith. And so sometimes it is a contending fight, um, standing up for the truth and staying strong that way. So we have that encouragement here. Okay, well, we are again just uh, surveying this. That's all I'll do with the book of Jude. Anyone have any comments at this time? Uh, you feel free. We're going to go on to our next slide, though, uh, highlighting the books of John. So this is point number 40 in our study. And um, there's three books that we're uh, looking at here. So first we'll look at First uh, John, Second John, and Third John. And so I've put these up as a slide um, where I've decided to put them side by side. And uh, they each have these themes. First, uh, the authorship, as far as we know, all written by uh, John the Apostle, or sometimes John the Evangelist, it's referred to. And sometimes we need to say it that way to keep them distinct from other Johns, such as John the Baptist. And so, all written there in that AD 85 to 90 uh, range. And then we look at the purposes of these, and we see to combat error. So there was error going on in the churches. It wasn't just Jude that saw that. Warned them against false teachers, similar theme uh, to what Jude was dealing with. And then to commend, encourage, and instruct a, a friend... But here's what God has seen fit. He's seen fit that in a couple cases, like with Philemon and with Third John, that a letter written to a friend, God saw fit to preserve that and have that included in the canon of Scripture. And so then we look at it and on these types of things, we say, well, what, did the, what would the Lord have for me? So I think application is always important. Uh, but we've got to be careful in application. Let's not apply it before we understand it. And so with the scriptures, understand it. I think we want to study the scriptures to understand it in context. Um, and there's, there's several things that could be said about context. Uh, when you read a per- portion of uh, scripture, the immediate context is one. Like maybe it's verse 15 within a chapter or a group of chapters where there's a topic being discussed. So understanding what's going on in the, the discussion is important. But then sometimes understanding the context of the book itself. And uh, many times these books are written in a certain context. If they're New Testament books, maybe within the context of the early church or during the con- within the context of Christ's ministry. Um, so then you have the context of the Testament itself, like the New Testament, the purpose, and the context of the Bible. And so um, it, it takes some study to do those types of things, but we want to be careful uh, to understand um, the teaching and the meaning. When you get into the context, um, understanding uh, perhaps things like the culture, uh, the language of uh, the, the people that were uh, God used to write it, um, the Greek language, for example, or the Hebrew or the Chaldean, um, the people who were chosen to write it. And, and so then, to the best of our ability, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and that's really what it's about, uh, the Bible says the Holy Spirit ministers to us to guide us into truth. And so if we're doing Bible study without the help of the Holy Spirit, we're in trouble. The Bible says that um, spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. 
Um, so if we do it on our own without the help of the Holy Spirit, who knows what kind of conclusions we're going to come to. Might stumble across the right thought, maybe not. Um, but the Holy Spirit is going to you know, even go beyond that, not just helping us understand, but what does it do to help us grow in our Christian walk? Um, so helping us to grow as Christians and to take that and to understand what to do with that, apply that, or even just to have a heart to do right with what we have. Um, because you can know the truth, but you don't feel like it or you don't want to, or maybe um, you just have some difficulty accepting or moving forward or allowing it uh, to penetrate into the heart and help us grow. And so these were the different issues uh, with these three books. Again, combating error and false teachers and being commended and encouraged and instructed um, as people. Of course, it's specific to his friend uh, Gaius, but we can uh, get instruction ourselves and then say, okay, well, Lord, what would you have me do with this? It's here for a reason. Now, not everything in the Bible is given to us to make application to ourselves personally. That's also part of the understanding of it, because uh, sometimes there's certain teaching maybe specific to a pastor. So unless you're a pastor, maybe maybe we can get a principle behind it, like why would a pastor be instructed that way or asked to do that? Um, and is there any, should there be any carryover to myself on my own behavior? But maybe not. And uh, still, um, the scriptures can be valuable and helpful. Okay, um, let me go uh, continue on this uh, layout here. We, we looked at authorship, place and date, and the purpose. So we'll go to our next one, starting with the theme here. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, uh, First John felt like lagging behind there as it <laughs> popped up late. Okay, so what about the themes uh, of our uh, books here? So on the previous slide, when we looked at First John, still keep it in view, um, the purpose was to com combat error, and the theme of it is fellowship with the Father. So remember, you know, purpose and theme, like you say, well, this is why I'm writing. Now, in order to do that, achieve my purpose, here's my focus. And so the book of 1 John has a focus a lot with fellowship with the Father. Okay, now, we'll come back to that uh, and expand upon that in a moment. Uh, when I comment on a summary of First John, uh, but fellowship with the Father. So you'd almost think it would be talking a lot about things that are error, uh, maybe false teaching, and yet a lot of the focus is fellowship with the Father. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, the book of Second John had a purpose of warning against false teachers, therefore a theme of that, abiding in the truth as essential for Christian living. Okay, so again, sometimes the theme doesn't immediately uh, mirror exactly what the purpose was and you have that here now the purpose of commending his friend um, and encouraging him instructing him we see the theme of third john uh, along those lines encouragement to walk in the truth and not in error with emphasis on the importance of hospitality um, is a lot of the theme of third john okay now let's come back uh, to this and talk about any uh, special considerations for a particular book and any summary of it. But I think as we do so, I'm going to come back and comment a little bit more on the purpose versus the theme of the books. Okay, so starting with 1 John. Um, 1 John is one of those books that um, I really appreciate and has been helpful uh, to me uh, personally. 
Um, we saw the purpose was to combat error. Really, the theme hints at one of the areas that I found it uh, helpful, fellowship with the Father. Um, would, would someone in here look up 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and read that for us out loud? Okay, Jeff, thank you. Yeah, and so I, I always find it interesting when the uh, human author of the work states, um, states something so clearly, these things have I written unto you. Oh, yeah, okay, John's going to tell us. Um, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So I'm writing these things to you who are Christians who believe on the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. And now the, it looks in English almost like the same uh, verb tense, but it's more of a progressive tense, that you may continue believing in the name of the Son of God. Okay, So he's writing these to Christians to strengthen them. Those of you who are Christians, I'm writing these things to you so that that confidence and faith in the Son of God can be strong and that you can go on believing in that. Okay, So that you can know you have eternal life and that you can continue in your faith. And, of course, when you're dealing with error and false teacher, sometimes that can shake a person's faith. Sometimes we can be shaken in our faith from lack of knowledge of truth. And so one of the things I appreciate in the book of First John is that there are a number, identified in the book, there are a number of characteristics of a true Christian. And so one of the things that's, people often um, struggle with is assurance of salvation. Like, am I really a Christian? What will happen to me when I die? Will I really go to heaven? Like, I, th I think I will, but sometimes we struggle with that. And the book of 1 John gives a number of descriptions throughout the book of what a Christian looks like or what they do. Now, it's not that what a Christian is doing makes them a Christian. But Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And so um, it's the same as what the book of James taught, that if you have faith without works, it's dead. Um, that when someone, as in the first book of 1 Corinthians mentions, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things become new. And so if someone doesn't have things become new, if there's not works and behavior and you know whatever goals of life we have, if it doesn't really back up the claim of salvation, then there's a lot of reason to doubt one's salvation. So when you read the book of 1 John, you kind of see, well, what does a Christian look like? What should a Christian be like? Um, I do have a hand. I've given it out in Sunday school in the past. Um, I got it from someone who was on staff at Ironwood. Um, I don't think he's down there anymore. He was young, young guy at the time, and probably 20 somewhere, and working towards being a pastor. I think he's actually pastoring somewhere now. Um, but it's a handout that he had put together, and it just goes through um, the things in First John that are assurance of salvation. I think I even titled it "Assurance of Salvation" handout. Uh, but that's one of the things that's there. You know, when uh, when we want to avoid heart disease. Really, it's focusing on behaviors 
um, whether it's like eating habits and how we care for our body, doing some good things is what avoids the bad things. And so you got all this error in the church and false teaching. How do we avoid getting sucked into that? Well, we, we're grounded in true things that will keep us healthy. So we don't fall for things because we know the Word of God. We don't, we don't have a, a heart that's not right with God, a heart that could have attitude problems or maybe making poor decisions. Um, so when someone comes along, maybe we get sucked in, maybe not because we get sucked in by what they're teaching, but we just really like them a lot. Well, I'm on their side, they're, they're my kind of person, and because we're not rooted, rooted in our heart to love the truth so much that we can't join someone, even if we like them, we wouldn't join them in their error. And I'm just giving some examples there. But what we see in the book, in these books, is a lot of the combating of error is about getting grounded in the truth. That was true of Jude, um, John. That's true of John. Even though the purpose was to combat truth, really, a lot of it is you got a right relationship with God. How's your fellowship with the Father? And are we rooted in things that's going to keep us on track, so we're not going to fall for the error on that? And so, um, a lot of this is uh, things like, uh, for example, what if you? What do you do when you sin? First John 1 John 1.9, we confess our sin, he forgives us our sin, cleanses us. So the fellowship is there. You can't have fellowship with God if you come to him with a life full of sin, because sin and God don't go together. Um, and so you, you come to God with a, a life that's presentable. Romans 12.1 and 2, I beg of you, Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, one that's holy and acceptable to God. Um, reasonable service for a Christian, he says, uh, but John mentions, yeah, we do sin, but let's get, you know, let's get that cleaned up so that we, our fellowship with God is not broken. Um, that's one example in the book along those lines. And so, um, in the book of Second John, uh, one of the special considerations here uh, would be in the first verse where he writes and mentions uh, a, an elect lady and her children, a chosen lady and her children, and um, I don't think people are in complete agreement on this. What does that refer to? Uh, one um, source that I was um, uh, referencing, he says that many believe that it refers to a church. Well, sometimes maybe a church can refer, be referred to with a feminine pronoun or a feminine reference. Um, and, and so some think that that was likely um, a church that was being talked about. Um, and someone that was special to John that he was writing to. Um, this one author, his opinion, and I haven't looked at this to myself to form an opinion on it, uh, so I don't know how strongly it, I should um, agree with him, but he says, most believe that the letter was addressed to, the, to an eminent Christian woman. I didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure this out, so um, I'm going to plead ignorance on it, um, but he does speak of an elect lady, and, and the word elect means chosen. Um, so what's good? Yeah, yeah. Either way, whether it's to a church or to a, a lady, I think the truths in it um, are not affected in how we understand them a lot by exactly who this is, whether it's an individual lady or it's a church. Um, but uh, John, uh, and so in quoting, and I'll, so I'll read a quote now. But this comes from the same author, so he thinks it was to an actual lady. So here's what he said. John was impressed with the love that had been established by the lady and her children. 
He encouraged her to continue in love and obedience. These two factors are crucial in living correctly now and receiving a full reward later on. And I'll pause there for a moment in his quote. Um, but he's basically uh, saying, well, if she wants to continue on the right track, continue in love and obedience as two uh, key things as we summarize the teachings of this book. He goes on to say, though, he warned her that anyone who does not hold to the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ is to be uh, separated from. And so, again, that's a lot when we uh, think back uh, the purpose and theme of this, warning about false teachers and being encouraged to abide in the truth as central to Christian living. And then the book of John, a uh, special consideration here that um, this one author points out is that it opens up by referring to himself as an elder. These special considerations are just like maybe little side things uh, to, you know, maybe unusual or, you know, to the book. Uh, but he, uh, he mentions here and as well as Second John uh, that he refers to himself as the elder. But that probably is not a position like being an elder in a church. It probably just references that he's getting older, um, which is where the name elder comes from in a church. It's supposed to be one of those in the church that is older in spiritual years, a spiritual leader with wisdom of spiritual age. It's not so much focused on um, being an older person when you're an elder in a church, but you're spiritually mature. Uh, but that's probably not what it refers to here. Uh, so Third John, it's a personal letter to a friend named Gaius, a common name during that time period. Um, I read somewhere, I forget if it was the same author I've been quoting or not, uh, might have been another one I was looking at, uh, mentions that um, Gaius was one of 15 names that was on some sort of list that, and I forget what the context was, but in the Roman Empire, it was, it was this list of names that you often would choose from when something was happening. Okay, I'm, uh, I didn't take time to try to memorize, and I just caught that somewhere in my reading, but didn't take notes on it. Um, but anyways, it was a common name in Rome, uh, so that's the point. Uh, it is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, so we don't know if, if his friend Gaius was one of the other Gaiuses mentioned elsewhere, or if it was someone different. Uh, but he does begin by praising him uh, for his faithfulness to the truth, for his love, for his hospitality. And so uh, he encourages him in the book to extend hospitality to a man named Demetrius, which I think is also was not an uncommon name uh, during those time. Uh, this author thinks that, uh, that I was referencing, thinks that it's good chance that Demetrius was the one who carried the letter to the friend Gaius. Uh, so perhaps in asking him to extend hospitalities because Demetrius was coming to him. And then uh, in this letter, uh, John also threatened to call public attention to a man named Diotrephes. Uh, this was a man who had been involved in a lot of unchristian behavior in the church. Uh, he said that he wanted the preeminence. Uh, he, he's a guy that's involved in Christian ministry for the fame of it, uh, for the honor, uh, for the pride, the attention that he's going to receive, uh, even to the point of having uh, apparently rebuked John the Apostle in some way, um, and also... Uh, apparently even trying to remove some from the church. I think he was a guy that wanted to solidify his power and control. And uh, John uh, here is rebuking that kind of behavior and that kind of thinking. And uh, there are some pastors that are 
in it for the control. You occasionally come across pastors who um, want to be unquestioned. It's like, you don't question me. I'm a man of God. God appointed me to this position. No human gets to question me. I only answer to God. And some pastors have that thinking in their mind of it's not right for you to question me. I'm the man of God. And I think some of them, you know, just have this attitude that's not supported in Scripture. Um, you can take the book of Mark, chapter 10, uh, right around verses 42 through 44. Um, you read about what a leader looks like in the kingdom of God, and you're a servant. Um, you have a servant mentality of serving people, and you're a slave mentality to God, doing the will of God for the benefit of others, uh, not a controlling, top-down, authoritarian view, which is contrasted there in Mark with the world's view of leadership, which is that authoritarian. You go here, you do this, don't question me. You know. And yet, uh, human leaders, even in the Christian church, sometimes are doing it that way. Okay, and then don't have much time here left, so let's see if I can get through this quickly. The book of Revelation, again, John the Apostle, thus point number 40 is John's writings. Uh, the place and date, uh, probably right around the year 95, towards the end of John's life. Uh, John had been exiled uh, by uh, the Roman government to an island which is um, a little bit west of the mainland Turkey, so it's like in the Aegean Sea between Turkey and Greece. And uh, so, um, you know, the Christians were being targeted during this time, many of them killed under Nero, and then was the guy that followed him, um, I'm not going to remember his name, starts with a D, I was thinking Diocletian, yeah, I don't know, uh, the next emperor of Rome after Nero did not let up on the um, persecution of Christians, and so he was exiled uh, for that reason as they were coming down on the church. Um, the purpose of the book is to unite and complete the prophetic truth of Scripture. And, of course, we have other prophetic truth in Scripture. And so this is a, what Revelation does, as we're probably a little familiar with uh, the Revelation uh, being about prophecy. Uh, the theme, end-time events, with emphasis on the seven-year tribulation. Uh, special considerations of the book. Well, um, a couple here. One on uh, maybe approaches to prophecy. And I'll just read here, there's uh, three approaches uh, that are main approaches that are out there in Christianity. Uh, one, and so I'll just uh, read a quote summarizing each of these. There are those who um, believe that the book of Revelation is to be taken as allegories. This allegorical approach denies the literal reality of Revelation and sees, uh, sees it containing messages and spiritual challenges and encouragement couched in figurative and symbolic language. Okay, in a nutshell, you don't take it literally. It's just allegorical for things, many things that have already happened. Okay? Uh, one is to take it historic, as historical. So one's allegorical, one's historical. The, the, the third one will be futuristic. But, okay, so first, allegorical. Second, historical. This view sees the content of Revelation as factual, but sees most of it as already fulfilled. Um, usually, um, all the chapter, um, all of it being fulfilled um, uh, up through chapter 20 anyways. Within this approach are those who would be 
uh, would see Revelation as a symbolic representation of church history, while others see the events of Revelation fulfilled during the terrible days of Emperor Nero. Okay, so it's still kind of not taking it, I mean, it's taking it a little more literally, but literally it's something that's already happened. Okay, now, um, it, the, the person I've been quoting with, I'll continue to quote here, on the futuristic view, uh, says this view takes Revelation 4 through 22 as yet future. The tribulation period is dealt with in chapter 6 through 19, while chapter 20 views Christ's thousand-year reign on the earth, and chapters 21 and 22 focus on eternity. The futuristic view is the best approach because it alone systematizes um, itself uh, with the other prophetic portions of the Bible. The futuristic approach to the apocalypse is the only approach that harmonizes prophecies in Daniel. Now, I'm kind of paraphrasing this section because he quotes all kinds of chapters in the Bible where prophecy happens. But in, in Daniel and in Matthew, uh, chapter 24 and 25, uh, in the book of uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, and many other passages in Jeremiah and Romans and John and in Zechariah and in Jeremiah. So in other words, he thinks the futuristic view aligns more with the prophecies in Scripture, and he goes on to say it's best because it alone accomplishes the purpose of chapter 1, verse 1, which states that the book is prophetic. Um, so if this is just things that have already happened or things that aren't going to happen at all, it's just allegorical, it doesn't seem to fit with what the theme of the book is, which is to reveal to us prophecy of things to come. And so, all right. Well, we're, we're kind of out of time this morning, except I'll just say this. Uh, in, well, maybe I'll save it for next week. So we'll do a little bit of a summary of that and then go on into um, a new study. Okay? All right, so Revelation, and I've got... Um, yeah, I was about ready to say, oh, maybe I could just go through the summary. No, I, I have quite a few things that I was going to highlight and I can't do it in 30 seconds. Alright, so we'll leave it right there. We'll pick up with a summary in Revelation next week. Any closing comments or thoughts from us? Okay.